Let's pray. God, Christ, Christ in me, that is our hope, our boast, our comfort, because we know apart from him, we can do nothing. And so Lord, immerse our hearts, our minds, steep us in the gospel that we might magnify Christ and live by faith. Use your word to sharpen us, to cultivate greater affection and love for our Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Um, I do want to start in an unconventional way by sharing a picture, a viral meme. Uh, One of my favorites, there it is. Uh, Probably not what you expect to ever see in church. Now, I might not be the most cultured person, but I know art when I see it, and that, my friends, is art. I'm guessing a bunch of questions initially popped into your head when you saw this for the first time. You know, who drew it? What happened? And there are a few theories out there. Some suggest the artist started off strong, but clearly was pressed for time, so he had to rush to finish the job. Others think that uh, the difference in skill is so stark, one half was drawn by a professional and the other half by a toddler. There's actually an interview with the artist behind the drawing, and he discloses, he explains it's an ad campaign for an art school. It was to advertise that if you attended their school, they would teach you, they would develop your skills. You can make progress and get better at drawing pretty clever. And that message resonates with us because we're always looking for ways to improve, whether it's drawing, cooking, or budgeting, sticking to a diet, going back to the gym to get in shape, updating our resume to climb the corporate ladder. We aspire to get better. And even as believers, we know we're supposed to make progress to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. The question though is how, how? We know the beginning that we are saved by grace, that we turn from our sins and place our faith in Christ. And we know the end that in heaven we'll be perfected and with Jesus forever. But what about the middle, the in-between? How do we mature? Do we get training or just figure it out on our own and hope that we don't come out looking like a sad horse? Well, in today's passage, the apostle Paul addresses, he tackles this topic of change and maturation as a Christian. He will teach us how. If you haven't already, Go ahead and take your Bibles, open them to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. We are skipping Galatians 2, 15 to 21, uh, but we do plan to return to it around Easter. This morning for our time, we'll be studying Galatians 3, verses 1 to 5. Follow along as I read our section of scripture. This is the word of God. Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, let's be honest. This is a rather unusual text. Not the typical tone we find in our Bible readings. Doesn't seem very on brand for Lighthouse. And I ask myself, how did I get stuck preaching this? Well, I'll tell you. When Pastor Kim was planning the sermon series, he knew such a delicate passage needs to be carefully delivered by the kindest, wisest, most compassionate pastor. But Pastor Tim was already service leading, so scratch that plan. And Pastor Kim backpedaled, and he recognized since this passage deals with being foolish and a gigantic fool, let's assign it to the biggest one on staff, Pastor David. Just kidding, just kidding. It's me, okay, I'm the dummy, bozo number one. Pray for praxis, please. Now, jokes aside, you can tell from scanning the text, we're going to wade into some heavy stuff. Things that are not to be taken lightly because the gospel and growth are at stake. Now, a brief recap, because we've been out of this book for a little bit. Uh, This will help situate us. But in chapters one and two, Paul establishes his authority as an apostle. His opponents were charging him to be an imposter, his message therefore suspect. But Paul refutes their allegations. He said, no, 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 no. I received the gospel message straight from God. And in fact, the other apostles confirmed it. They approved of my ministry. So having defended the legitimacy of his ministry, Paul now goes on the offense. Beginning in chapter three, the apostle launches forward in advancing the doctrine, the importance of justification by faith. And listen, this is not a issue, but the issue. Because how you come to faith is how you continue in it. How you come to faith is precisely how you continue in the faith. That's our key idea, that from start to finish, we live by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, how you come to faith, the gospel announced, the gospel announced our savior. Look again at verse one. Paul says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Stop there. Now that's an intensity we're not accustomed to. Paul pulls no punches, he lays it on thick, calling the Galatians foolish. One scholar translates this opening salvo as, you dear idiots. It's pretty blunt, right? I was trying to think through other insults in the Bible that would be on par, that would have the same level intensity, and I can only find a couple. There's whitewashed tombs, you know, a scathing rebuke by Jesus that you are clean on the outside, but dead within. Another one is in Amos 4, when the prophet calls his audience cows of Bashan. Now, I don't know where Bashan is. I just know it's never polite 
to call anyone a cow. Not very nice. And yet, in verse 1, Paul has no qualms with being direct. He calls the Galatians foolish. In fact, he'll call them foolish again in verse 3 for emphasis. Why? Not because the Galatians are developmentally delayed or incapable of thought. Paul calls them foolish because they weren't being thoughtful. They aren't thinking straight. If wisdom is knowledge applied, then foolishness is the opposite. It's knowing poison is bad, but you still drink it. It's knowing the busy street is dangerous, but playing in it anyways. And when a father sees his children wandering onto a road filled with fast cars, he doesn't gush about their adventurous nature. He doesn't wait for them to learn from their mistakes. No, he raises his voice and yells, don't be fools. Get out of the streets. You're going to get yourself killed. You see, sometimes love is compelled to warn and to do so firmly. Now, disclaimer, this is not our obvious, or this is not our ordinary way of addressing one another. Just like how a good parent saves his sternest rebuke for something serious, this tone is the exception, not the norm. So don't get all pumped up by this verse where you're chasing people after service saying, you fool, you fool, you fool. Don't do that. No, our default setting as Christians is one of charity, grace, and gentleness. But there are rare occasions where out of love, you need to pull the fire alarm. And this is one of those moments. While blunt with the Galatians, Paul is also balanced. Yes, he addresses the Galatians head on, but he's also aware other parties are involved. Notice, there's a who to the bewitching. There's no denying that the Galatians are culpable, that they are responsible for acting foolishly. But at the same time, there's no denying they've also been duped, an easy target. They've been influenced, bewitched by another. And this word conjures up images of magic being hexed and hypnotized. The apostle Paul is essentially saying, who has cast a spell on you? Remember the context, the background for this letter. Paul initially came to Galatia, heralding the gospel, and the people heard, they got saved, placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And then soon after, these Judaizers arrive trying to improve upon Paul's message. Justification by faith? That's beginner stuff. That's baby Christian. If you're really serious about God, if you want to mature as a believer, do something about it. Prove it by keeping Old Testament customs like circumcision, dietary restriction, and celebrating Jewish holidays. And it sounds all so good and righteous quite convincing. 
these Judaizers weren't accusing Paul of being completely off base. It just wasn't enough. They weren't telling the Galatians not to believe in Jesus. They were just saying, well, do something, anything. Do a little more. Paul was about Jesus alone. His opponents were interested in adding a Jesus plus something. But listen, one drop of food coloring contaminates the entire glass. Paul upholds the purity of the gospel as we continue reading in verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The apostle snaps them out of their trance. When he came and presented the gospel, Paul preached Christ with such conviction and consistency, with such vividness and passion. It's as if they were teleported back in time. It's as if they were brought back to Golgotha, eyewitnesses of the crucifixion themselves. In fact, the word publicly portrayed, it's graphic. It's the idea of a placard, a billboard, Paul kept painting this picture until it was etched into their eyes, until it was seared upon their minds. They can still see the blood trickling down from his thorn-pierced brows. They can still hear the ringing of the hammer, pounding those iron spikes through soft flesh. The mob and the jeers, the dark clouds, the gentle plea, Father, forgive them. The final cry, it is finished. The Galatians can replay the scene because Paul's ministry was singular. Singular. Jesus Christ was no mere baby in a manger, master carpenter in Bethlehem, or surely a great teacher on the Galilean shores. No, Paul's ministry can be condensed down into three words. Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ crucified pays your debt for sin. Jesus Christ crucified frees you from the law. Jesus Christ crucified is your righteousness, is your justification, is your reconciliation back to God. This is the message Paul put on repeat. This is the truth he banked his life on. And this is the gospel he announced. Here is your savior. Which is why Paul is stunned. He's beside himself to discover the Galatians. They're not walking in step with the faith. They were living inconsistently with the gospel they received. And what the apostle does in verse two is he circles back, back to square one. The Christian life has always been about living by faith. Paul demonstrates this, how you come to faith. So the gospel is not only announced, the gospel is accepted. The gospel is accepted for salvation. Verse two, Paul writes, let me ask you, only this, 
which is hilarious because Paul doesn't stick to his word, right? He unleashes a whole barrage of rhetorical questions, a total of five. It's a sneak attack, this rapid fire. It reminds me of me. If I have my kid's attention, I'm going all in. You know, I'm going to drop as much knowledge as I can while they're still listening to me. And Sally, this tactic has backfired because now they employ it on me. But Paul frames his little intro like this because the first question is paramount. How you answer it determines or should determine how you answer the rest of the questions. It's a domino effect. So what's the million dollar question? We read on. Let me ask you only this, because they'll say everything. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the first time Paul mentions the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit becomes a major focus for the rest of the letter. Now here, spirit is shorthand for the gift of salvation, for his work of regeneration in resurrecting our dead hearts to be alive to God. It's a divine miracle. This isn't something you can force or strong arm God into doing for you. It's as Peter declares in Acts 2. You and I, what do we do? We repent and then we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every true Christian has the spirit residing within them. God's very presence and power inhabiting our hearts. And Paul rewinds the tape. When did this happen, Galatians? He pits two options against each other. Was it after something you did, some sort of work of the law, or was it after hearing with faith? And you need to realize how obvious the answer is. That's why these are rhetorical questions. Because your average Galatian, he wasn't well-versed in religious traditions or the Old Testament laws. Galatians, they were pagan through and through. They knew nothing of Moses and his stone tablets. They had no problem gorging themselves on unkosher meat. The rite of circumcision was just flat out bizarre to them. But then Paul showed up and he proclaimed a crucified Messiah. They heard the gospel with faith. They believed and were saved, receiving the spirit. And it's the same for us, Christian. Beloved, when did you receive the Spirit? Not after perfect church attendance or after you cleaned up your act or finally served in children's ministry. No, it's not about what you and I do, but what Christ has done. Soon we'll get to take communion together but we don't participate in this family meal to earn a reward, but to remember a gift. Not so we can get saved, no, but we rejoice at how we've been saved by his broken body, by his shed blood. That's how you get in. You hear with faith, you believe in the gospel, receiving the spirit because you've accepted the gift of salvation. 
And this is the paradigm, the pattern for everything else. Because from verse three and on, Paul is merely moving down the line, applying the same principle to other facets of life. How you come to faith is how you continue in it. Our second main heading. Now we change and grow in Christ's likeness by applying the gospel, applying the gospel in our sanctification. Verse three, Paul remarks, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Can you hear how puzzled the apostle is? If your Christian conversion was by the spirit, then why would your Christian transformation be by anything else? It doesn't add up. It's illogical. It'd be like if you got on a plane to fly and once that plane took you to cruising altitude, you started to freak out and panic. You started to flail your arms like a flappy bird telling everyone around you, come on guys, we gotta do this, let's fly. No, you'd be crazy, right? Even if I'm your pastor and I'm sitting next to you, I'm pretending like I don't know you. You're acting foolishly. And yet this is precisely what we're prone to do, is it not? When it comes to spiritual growth, how many times do we pursue it without the spirit? Paul draws a comparison. The spirit is divine strength. The flesh is human effort. Now to our modern ears, when we hear flesh, we imagine debased, carnal things, right? We think of sleeping around, getting drunk, everything else in a rap music video. But in Paul's day, flesh was not about being less religious, but actually more. The flesh was the human effort in pious activities like fasting often, tithing a lot, reciting scripture. Now these can be good practices. The issue is do we trust in them as ultimate for our sanctification? Do we believe that these activities, these behaviors are decisive, the key for unlocking spiritual transformation? In my opinion, two of the scariest verses in the Bible are John 5 verses 39 to 40. When Jesus says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Did you catch that? Jesus is admonishing the people for reading their Bibles. Why? Because they had come so close only to stop one step short. Pathways of grace are not parking spots, beloved. These people were preoccupied, busy, studying the word, mastering scripture, but they didn't allow that to usher them into the presence of the word made flesh to worship Christ. We know if we're gonna grow in the faith, 
We need to avoid all the wicked vices of the world. That's basic. What we get tripped up on is handling good gifts from God in a fleshly manner. Because on the surface, the person being transformed by the gospel and the person trusting in their own effort may be doing exactly the same thing. They're plugged into a small group, disciplined in their devos, evangelizing the lost. The difference though, is what's underneath the hood. Are you driven by fitting in with church culture, maintaining appearances, doing what a good Christian should do? Or are you fueled by faith with love and a humble dependence upon God? A car can only have one engine and so does your heart. Now this is tricky. How do we discern where we're inclined to live by the flesh? Let me offer a couple diagnostic questions. When are you least likely to turn to God, to seek him in the scriptures for wisdom? What things never make it into your prayers? Like, Lord, I need your help. I need your divine power to brush my teeth. That never happens, right? Why? Because you got it. I'm not saying you need to flip to the Bible every second of the day and spell out everything in prayer, but when it comes to change, to your sanctification, are there areas you never bring to the Lord? Your impatience, how you handle money, purity in mind, gossip, or the words that leave your lips, loving your in-laws. Could it be that in these areas, you're not living by faith, but by the flesh, trusting in your grit, your game plan to get it done? Is there a reflex to turn to God, to rely upon him or something, someone else? You know, the Bible is replete with agricultural illustrations to stress, to highlight the organic nature of our relationship with God. How does a tree thrive and bear fruit? Well, a number of factors. Surround the tree with a support system to stabilize growth. Spray it with safe chemicals to defend it from insects. Or if you're a little loopy, you might whisper encouragements to the tree. Grow, I love you. Now, some tips are more helpful than others. Pesticide is probably more effective than sweet nothings. But these are all secondary to what's primary. Planting that tree in rich, fertile soil. In fact, focusing too much on a strategy can actually be harmful. You know, if you're like, look at what I have, look at this robust, sophisticated support system that I've built out. There's all these stakes, wires, and ties that it's lifted the tree 10 feet into the air. You can even see its roots now. That tree will die. A support system is only good when it supports, not when it removes or replaces the foundation. 
Growth requires being grounded. And this is how Christian transformation works. When we are planted in the gospel, when we abide in Christ. Bible reading plans, church programs, apps you have on your phone. If it helps you depend upon Jesus, then it's beneficial. But anything that doesn't is detrimental. So what does this look like practically on a day-to-day basis? Take anger. What's brooding beneath our outburst or scathing looks or other expressions of anger? It's a wounded ego, not feeling like you're receiving the respect and praise you deserve. But when we are rooted in the gospel, the spirit applies it to our hearts by telling us we don't need to live for the approval of others. We have been approved by God in Jesus Christ. And then we rehearse that. We use all the tools at our disposal to bolster that reality. We recite scriptures that will anchor our hearts in that truth. We confide in our accountability partners so that they can point us towards Jesus Christ. And like a tree, it may take time. It may take a long time, but we change as we remain and feed on the good news daily. It doesn't matter if you're eight or 80, every human being is sustained by food. Beloved, the gospel is our bread and butter. And the irony is if you think you outgrow it, then you won't grow. New believer to seasoned saint, our souls are nourished, our lives are transformed as we feast on the gospel. It's as Luther said, to progress is to always begin again. Paul presses the gospel further in, into two areas that we're prone to forget this. He provides two case studies for how sanctification happens through applying the gospel. And our first case study is in our suffering, our suffering. Look again at verse four. He says, did you suffer, Galatians, so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now with suffering, we can be guilty of adopting a works-based approach, attitude. You know, we assume a direct correlation between our circumstances and God's countenance upon us. You know, if all is fine and dandy, and God must be really pleased with me. He must be impressed with my five-day Bible reading streak. Or, or he's really happy with how I have been serving my spouse, leading family worship. But once problems arise at work, the medical exam reveals something concerning, or people just don't like you because you're a Christian, then we're perplexed. Then we're complaining. God, what's going on? You must be mad at me. What are you punishing me for? Have I not prayed enough? Have I not served enough? And right then and there, our doing has crept back into the equation. We reduce God into a basic algorithm. Happy God, happy life. Unhappy God, 
unhappy life. What's happened? We believe if something is right, it should come easy. And so we grovel and grumble because we are handling our trials according to the flesh, by our human effort and standards, forgetting God has divine purposes. His word tells us our troubles and tribulations are not for retribution, but redemption. But when we deviate from that truth, then we suffer in vain. We squander the opportunities. We miss out on how God uses our present affliction to prune us for future glory, to change us and mold us and make us more like Jesus Christ. It's called growing pains, not growing pleasures. Friends, fall back on the gospel because what does the gospel tell us? It tells us that God will never forsake his people, that he refines us through the fire. He loves us so much that he will do whatever it takes to cultivate a greater reliance on the only thing that will never fail us, him. The lesson is learned best in the crucible most poignant in our suffering because we're stripped of alternatives, of false saviors. We can't just brute force our way through when we're persecuted for our faith, when stricken with cancer, when finances are tight, relationships in disarray and children rebellious. Sure, we can hold it together for a moment, but the cracks are bound to burst. Bank accounts can only store so much Health deteriorates over time. Street smarts and ingenuity will only take you so far. They can't sustain our souls. Only God and the gospel can. I was considering illustrating this with heroes of the faith, examples of those who have suffered well and grown through their trials. I thought of Tim Challey suffering the loss of his son, Corey Ten Bloom suffering under Nazi imprisonment, Johnny Erickson Tata suffering through both disability and cancer. But I realized how silly I was. I don't have to go far or with the famous. Many of you here at Lighthouse are bright examples of those who suffer well. The brother struggling with same-sex attraction at our church who can declare being a Christian with same-sex attraction has been a back-breaking burden. It's been without respite, characterized by despair and great darkness. The isolation has been cruel. The pain, unrelenting, hopelessness, and weeping have been all too familiar. And I can thank God for all of it. I can thank God for never leaving my side in the lonely nights. I can thank God for being the one who enters my pain. I can thank God that he redeems my same-sex attraction. I can thank God for all his promises given to me in Christ. I can thank God for grace that doesn't just forgive my sin, but transforms me from the inside out. I can thank God because he is mine and I am his. I can thank God because of the gospel. Church, you are my heroes of the faith. 
You're teaching me. You suffer well as you endure depression, abuse, infidelity, marital strife, hard work conditions, singleness, and so much more. But you press on living by faith, trusting in God's promises that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That God is making you more like Christ as you cast yourself upon him and cling to the gospel. The last case study Paul conducts is the gospel applied in our serving, in our serving. Verse five, Paul continues, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, verse five reads almost exactly like verse two, but there is a subtle difference. Back in verse two, Paul has the Galatians think of when they first received the spirit in their past. But in verse five, do you see the shift? The shift to the present tense? He who supplies, not a one and done, God supplies and continues to supply the spirit so that there is no confusing where the power comes from. And we need to remember this, especially when we are in positions of power, when we minister the gospel and serve others so that it doesn't get to our head. Notice Paul mentions God working miracles among the Galatians. And certainly this includes their own faith, their salvation, their sanctification, their growth through suffering. But the miracle God worked among the Galatian also includes working around them. That through their service, unbelievers were coming to faith. The shackles of sin were being severed. People were responding to solid teaching, growing in obedience. Perhaps some of the Galatians even witnessed and marveled as the lame were healed, the blind given sight. And Paul inquires, was this produced by a waving of your hands, by excellent church events, or a polished gospel presentation? Was it a result of works of the law, or was it by faith, by believing in God who's in the business of miracles? And this goes against the grain of our world, right? Our society is a performance-driven culture. Honor roll, acceptance letters for those who finish their homework and go above and beyond. On the practice, uh, on the piano, basketball court, practice makes perfect. You have to earn your keep. The promotion is reserved for those who perform, who excel. This is the kind of Petri dish we've been incubated in. That success is up for grabs. You can have whatever you want if you're willing to do whatever it takes. But listen, God does not play by those rules. You and I cannot manufacture spirituality in ourselves or in others. We can't reverse engineer the results. 
Beloved, even our serving is sheer grace. And I confess, this is a perpetual struggle for me as a pastor. Guess what? I don't get up here to be trash at preaching. You know, like, all right, God, let's see what you can do with nothing. Now, you might think I'm still trash at preaching, but that is a separate issue which we can discuss at a later time called never. (laughs) Preaching is hard work. You got to study the text, read academic big books, commentaries. You got to think about the people, the congregation, what illustrations help, what application points are relevant. And look, I want to do well, but I can invest so much time, so much effort in preparing a message, I delude myself. I begin to think that the results rest all on my shoulders and the sermon I've crafted. And this mentality spills outside of message prep. And throughout the week, I can walk on eggshells, coaching myself. Don't get into a fight with the wife. Don't lose your cool with the kids. Make sure to say hi to that grumpy neighbor and pray extra long leading up to Sunday. As if my works contribute success in serving, as if the growth of others hinges upon me and what I do. But it's not a riveting story in the sermon that wins unbelievers to Christ. It's not an insightful, piercing application that produces transformation in the church. It's not even my own obedience or holiness that guarantees a fruitful ministry. Do they matter? Absolutely. But they're not ultimate. It is God taking his gospel by the spirit he supplies, working miracles in and through weak and willing vessels to change the heart of his people. That's where the power lies. So let me ask, is this evident in your life? Is this evident in how you lead a Bible study, how you shepherd your children, how you run errands, witness to your colleagues, how you labor at the office? Is there an aroma of desperation in your ministry, in your serving? Or do you take all the credit? Sunday school teachers, disciplers, event planners, company execs, counselors, parents. Yes, prepare your hardest, but also pray your hardest. Memorize this verse as your motto for serving. Not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. That's the difference maker. For me and those I serve, Because you may plant, another may water, but God is the one who grants growth. What I find most peculiar about this passage is how Paul goes about presenting his argument. I mentioned from chapter three and on, Paul defines and defends, unpacks the doctrine of justification by faith, and he will get scholarly. He will get very technical, getting down into the nitty gritty, breaking down the grammar, tracing keywords like offspring. 
He will wax eloquent, theologizing about how covenants are ratified, the mechanics on how we're brought in, adopted into God's family. But before he engages us cerebrally, Paul makes his case experientially. You see that? In verses one to five, he assumes experience. The evidence Paul appeals to for the doctrine of justification by faith is your own life, beloved. And this is challenging for me because my natural tendency is to lean towards the facts. I need logic and reason. God's word, give me the truth because I want something concrete, objective, and experiences feel too flimsy, too arbitrary. Now, of course, we want to bring our experience and feelings under the scrutiny of God's word. Experience without the guardrails of the truth lead to a distorted type of Christianity. But Paul is also teaching us truth without experience is a dead faith that is just as unbiblical. And at the outset, Paul underlines our experience to get our doctrine and our lives back on track. He pushes through the theory into our reality until our faith is visceral because we don't just know about the gospel with our heads, but we've experienced it with our hearts. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And providentially, this is something we witnessed last Sunday, if you were here, through the baptism testimonies. These brothers and sisters testifying that for all they're doing and trying to be fulfilled, to be good enough, none of it worked until God worked. And I think that's why we enjoy testimonies so much, because it reminds us of our own, that this grace and Jesus is not all made up and fiction. The gospel is true. We've experienced it ourselves. Justification by faith is not just a talking point or doctrine to debate. It is cherished. It is prized. It is stamped on our hearts because from start to finish, we apply the gospel. Echoing the apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What a glorious gospel that we have. Let's pray. God, we plead with you that you would do the work only you can do. Lord, we want to move past just hearing and hearing with faith to see with eyes filled with tears of joy and gratitude to Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we do not want to be foolish and attempt to grow on our own when you have given us your spirit to guide and direct us, to prune and mature us, to encourage us. Lord, use our suffering, our serving to humble us that we might draw near to Christ, abide in him and continue to rely upon 
the good news. Lord, we thank you for this word. May it bear much fruit, and we ask you to perform that miracle. In Jesus' name, amen.